0: This year, the San Diego Union-Tribune has reporting on the U.S. asylum system. The system was built in the post-war period with the failures of the Holocaust in mind, but it has never lived up to that legacy. The final installment of Returned presents a list of solutions that could refocus the system on its supposed purpose, saving lives. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Kate Morrissey, you're the immigration reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune and the final installment of your year-long project, Returned, published on Sunday. This series breaks down the arbitrary nature of the asylum system and how politics has influenced it. What do we know about what the Biden administration intends to do about it right now and how it could change?
1: So what we've heard so far from... uh the transition team and and the campaign of the incoming president is that um, we've had promises to undo some of the changes that happened under the Trump administration to the asylum system. Um, if you think about programs like the Remain in Mexico program that requires asylum seekers to stay on the Mexico side of the border while their cases are processed in courts on the U.S. side of the border. Um, Biden has, has promised to eventually undo that program. Um, We don't know exactly how quickly that's going to happen. Um, In most recent days, we've been getting some sort of cautionary language from uh, transition team officials and and incoming administration officials saying like, Hey, we're going to do these things, but we're going to need a second to figure out the logistics of how to do it. And so, mostly the message has been just like, hang on. Um, and they've also been, I think trying to send that message to people who might be thinking about starting their migration journey now saying like, hang on a second, let us get this sorted out before you show up here. Um, so it's sort of a, a softer message of deterrence, but but we we haven't seen Um, you know, plans of like, here's how we're going to do this, or or here's exactly how many days it's going to take us to like, get these changes rolled out. So there's a lot still to be determined on that front.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of the theme of all the stories you've written about this throughout the year is that Trump took a system that was already complicated, and somewhat politicized, and made it even more complicated and politicized. So taking it back to even how it was like in the Obama administration is, is a lift unto itself. So to reform the entire thing, that's something that, you know, will likely take years.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've, we've heard from the Biden administration that they're interested in sort of rethinking how asylum processing works. Um, Some changes to do that would require Congress, other changes won't, we don't Quite yet know exactly how much of a stronghold in Congress the administration is going to have politically, um, because of the two races in Georgia. So that's all sort of to be determined, even even on that level. Um, but when you you know when you look historically at the system, like it's it's always had these pretty glaring shortcomings, um, and we saw those prior to Trump, and we and and under Trump, what we saw was just this really extreme sort of strategy of making it really painful and uncomfortable to be in the system so that people would give up and go home. It's a very sort of extreme deterrence mindset of, of trying to keep people out and keep people from accessing the system and keep people from from feeling like they have any hope of, of being able to get protection here. Um, that's like, you know, we, there've been so many changes. There's still been changes announced, you know, over the last couple of weeks to the asylum system under the Trump administration. So they're still putting in restrictions and changes all the way up into the end. And um, yeah, it's, it's going to be, you know, whether Biden tries to undo that bit by bit or make some sort of sweeping change or some combination of the things like that's that's all still really unknown.
0: Mm hmm. And in this installment of Returned, you spoke to many people connected to the system and asked them what they thought could be improved. Let's go through those ideas one by one and explain some of the problems with the current status quo and what could be improved. So the first one, moving immigration court to the judicial branch. Uh, what is the status quo now?
1: So immigration court right now is part of the executive branch. So if you remember back to like, you know, government class back in in high school or, you know whenever you had it in your, your K through 12, you've got the three branches of government. Normally we think of courts and judges being in the judicial branch. That's where you know the Supreme Court is, all the, the federal judges, everybody. Um, but that's not the case for immigration court. It's, it's part of an agency within the executive branch, which means that um, their sort of power and direction come from the president rather than a judge. Um, and the president, of course, is a, is a political, is a sort of very politicized figure. Um, and we tend to think of judges as these more um, trying to be impartial, rooting through the law. Obviously, there's still some, you know, political slant, perhaps, to, to how they see the world. But um, what we ask of judges is to be a more uh, sort of non-biased viewpoint. Um, and so the 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 boss directly above immigration judges is the attorney general. that position is generally thought of as a prosecutor position so to have a prosecutor being the boss of judges um, on cases that eventually if they get appealed enough that prosecutor is going to be prosecuting rather than deciding um, it's all very it's all a little too close to home um it's, it's what you know, whether you talk to the Immigration Judges Union, or, or immigration attorneys themselves, or the Federal Bar Association, um, so many people think that, that this, this structure change needs to happen, both for sort of the, the appearance and feeling that that people in court are getting, you know, their fair hearing, that's not being influenced by by sort of partisan goals. And then also, Um, there's a lot of people who argue that it would make the the system more efficient, that it would make the system, uh, have, you know, more, more fair outcomes. So there's, there's quite, um, a lot of issues in the system that, that this move is, is seen as something that could solve them Mm -hmm. or at least help with them.
0: And the second uh, change that is suggested is to better diversify and train immigration judges. What are some of the issues there?
1: So if you remember back to the second installment in the series, we did a big um, data analysis of outcomes in immigration court and asylum cases. And what we found is that judges have a pretty wide and disparate uh, grant rates and denial rates. And so um, part of the idea is to to look at the hiring process for judges. How are they being selected? Where are they coming from? Um, about half or just over half of judges um, tend to come from the government agency that is responsible for arguing against immigrants in immigration court. So they come up arguing against people being able to stay for years and then they're supposed to decide whether or not people can stay once they become judges. And we do see that that um, correlates with with sort of a, a tendency to not allow people to stay in their outcomes. We did that analysis in in the second part in the series, um, so by having a more diverse bench, you could sort of adjust for some of those those biases, um, and then with the um, with the training, there's a lot of um, a lot of recommendations out there from like the the UN agency responsible for um, sort of refugees and asylum and a lot of the like responsible for monitoring these things around the world about how sort of there's a need for continuous training for people who make decisions in asylum specifically. And so to really ensure that judges are getting, you know, as much training as they need to be able to, to look at these, these individual cases and make, make determinations that, um, will, will make sure that people who really need protection are getting protected.
0: Hmm. And number three, uh, reducing the backlog how bad is it right now?
1: So there are well over a million cases in the backlog. I think we're at one point two million right now, um, as of the last time I looked at the at the reports put out by Track, which is um, a, a sort of an, an entity out of Syracuse University that that publishes um, data on this stuff all the time. Um, and so that's that's a lot of cases, and what that means is that people wait years and years and years for answers to their cases. They're waiting in this really difficult limbo, which is hard on them because they're wanting to, you know, push their lives forward and they can't until, you know, they have that actual permission to be here. Um, And then it also sort of clogs the system so that um, people who are not the people that the system was created for um, stay here longer if they put in a claim. Um, and so it's, you know, it, it sort of hits the system on all sides and, and makes it very difficult um, to actually efficiently protect people and filter out the people who are who the system was not created for.
0: hmm. And that was one of the original kind of, uh, points of, uh, conflict in the Trump administration. This is kind of what Trump argued saying that people were overstaying when they shouldn't have. And this was kind of part of the rhetoric that was behind all the changes that we saw in the earliest days of the administration.
1: Right. And what we've seen is that the backlog has continued to increase. Um, and when you talk to people who work very closely in the system, um, A lot of what you hear is that those changes have actually led to more of an increase in the backlog rather than less. Um, We have seen a number of immigration judges get hired, um, but we're missing all of the clerks or at least they haven't hired enough clerks and and translators and people who do a lot of that support work in the courtroom. Um, And so so there needs to be more attention to the sort of breadth of resources that are needed to make the court function. Um, but then on top of that, there've been decisions about how to reprioritize cases. And this is something that we saw under the Obama administration as well, that the judges union has spoke up about in great detail and is, you know, another reason why they want to move immigration court, um, out of the executive branch. But when you reprioritize cases, what that often means is that cases that are ready to be heard, all the evidence is ready, all the documents are submitted, get pushed way down the line and cases that are not ready to be heard, get moved up. And so judges don't have the power to control when they're hearing their cases, and that, that increases the, the inefficiencies and the backlog.
0: Mm-hmm. Number four, uh, providing legal aid to asylum seekers. What's the claim about doing this as opposed to our current system?
1: So right now, um, unlike criminal court where you are given an attorney if you're not able to afford one, um, in immigration court, that doesn't happen if you can afford an attorney, you have a right to attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, you're stuck on your own representing yourself. Um, And immigration law is extremely complicated. Um, It's thicker than the tax code. I actually had an immigration judge one time, like hold up the book of immigration laws at me one time. And it's this like giant thing, Um, you know? And so for somebody who is not trained in law or in immigration law specifically to navigate that, Is really difficult. And that means that judges have to take a longer time to explain to people here's what's happening in your case, here's what you need to do. Um, It also means that people are likelier to apply for things that they're not eligible for because it's hard to understand sometimes what you're eligible for and what you're not. There's a lot of little asterisks and, like, you know, oh, but if this, then that, but if this, then not that, unless this, you know, just like super complicated. Um, And so, the what's what's been found in, in some in different studies is that with more uh, with more legal support, people move through the system more efficiently. Um, they also are more likely to uh, to have an outcome that allows them to stay in the United States, um, and they also. Um, are more likely to get out of detention, which, you know, is a very expensive thing to be detaining people. So we see a lot of attorneys helping people get out on bond. There's there's numerous, numerous ways that the system's efficiencies are are helped by having an attorney who's helping the person navigating. And we see, you know, in countries like Canada, everybody has an attorney helping them navigate Canada system, which admittedly looks different from the US system, but um, that is a norm in other places.
0: Yeah, from this whole first section, it appears that the U.S. asylum system is needlessly complex, which just introduces multiple times in which it can get further delayed, in which to a certain point, we're wasting everybody's time, including federal resources.
1: There are definitely ways that, that federal resources could be used to do this system that would be more efficient and streamlined and also humane.
0: Mm-hmm. Number five, uh, ending the detention of asylum seekers. Um, when I just kind of think of this, I imagine this one probably has the strongest public support given the backlash that we saw over a number of immigration policies the Trump administration has created. So what are some of the arguments uh, to change this policy?
1: So I think this would probably be one of the more controversial <laughs> points um, in the piece. There are a lot of people who who very much want to end detention, and there are a lot of people who very much do not want to end detention. Um, I think something like moving immigration court might have more sort of across the aisle support. Um, but I do think there are a lot of people out there who ve- feel very strongly about ending the detention of asylum seekers um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that it's, like I said a second ago, it's extraordinarily expensive. So I calculated based on the, the average cost to, to hold an individual adult in immigration detention last year, um, it costs about $3,500 a month for one person. Um, if that person is a parent with, with a child or children, the cost per person goes up extraordinarily. Um, and so for that amount of money, you could, you know, instead of holding somebody in detention for, for a fraction of that money, you could have them, you know, working with a case manager, to, to check in and figure out, you know, the legal help that they need with their case and, you know, getting their life situated so that they can, you know, have somewhere to be while they're, they're going through the process. There have been pilot programs that have, have done that, that sort of thing. And they found that people, you know, tend to show up for their, their court hearings at at very high rates. And that goes up almost to a hundred percent if they have attorneys along with that case management work. Um, So there are there are viable alternatives out there. Um, And then the, the sort of other side to this is that a lot of people who, you know, are are truly in need of asylum, the people who have lived through the kinds of experiences that make you eligible for asylum, are carrying really intense trauma. And so going from you know fleeing your country because your government was discriminating against you because of something about your identity and imprisoning you for no reason and torturing you in those prisons, you escape. You make it here to the United States and then we put you back in what basically looks like a prison. Um, and so there are a lot of people for whom the system was, was created for people in their situation who cannot mentally cope with being in a detention facility. Um, there are people who give up on their cases because of this. Um, there are others who, you know, it just exacerbates the the mental health uh, trauma that they're carrying.
0: Hmm. Certainly. And uh, number six, act as an example for other wealthy countries. Uh, In reading this portion of your story, it kind of reminds me of some of the changes that we're hearing in general terms from the renewed foreign policy of the Biden administration to kind of set a a different standard for the rest of the world. Can you explain what the U.S. would need to do to kind of raise the bar for the rest of the global community?
1: Sure. So I think it's... It, to understand this section, it's important to understand that the asylum system is our version of a screening process to figure out who is a refugee, to identify people who are refugees, because refugees have certain rights under international agreements. And so other countries have their own systems for screening for refugees. Um, and sometimes uh, if you know the country that is receiving refugees itself does not have a lot of resources, Sometimes the United States and other other countries will um, will resettle some of those refugees to their own country. So refugees who have already been identified in other places would come to the United States. Um, and so a lot of times when we say the word refugee in the United States, we're talking about people who have been resettled. But people who went asylum also, when you look at, at you know the international definitions, are also refugees. Um, And so when you're looking sort of globally at at where refugees actually are, or where people who are waiting to be identified as refugees are, um, and where most of them are not here. Most of them are in developing countries. Most of them are in countries that have way fewer resources than the United States that are way smaller than the United States. Um, And even when you look at wealthy countries, you know, there are our peers take in more than us relative to their their wealth and size as well. Um, and even I believe Germany in raw numbers takes t- hosts more displaced people than we do. So, um, you know, when you look at the issue of forced displacement is this, you know, it's this global thing. And And we came together in the 50s and 60s as a world and said, we should do something systematically to be able to address forced displacement when it happens. And when, when a country like the United States that has so much influence and so many resources says, you know what, we're gonna pull back on, on our participation in these systems that have been set up, that sends a message to other wealthy countries as well as other less wealthy countries, that it's okay to do that. And so then you get a ripple effect where everybody starts pulling back and then people are just stuck with, with nowhere to find help. And so if we as the United States say, you know what, we're gonna do this, then that puts pressure on other countries to also step up and do, you know, do their share and, and work together to try and, and address these issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the net results of kind of this action is, you know, the 10 cities in Greece and Turkey uh, from people fleeing Syria, the Rohingya situation. It's stuff that could be managed if there was someone at the table willing to kind of set the stage.
1: Right. I mean, even if you look at, you know, Australia sends most asylum seekers to an island, they won't even let them on the mainland of, of the country. Um, and that's, you know, there are a lot of a lot of countries that are starting to take that more restrictionist tone with with displaced people. Mm -hmm.
0: The seventh recommendation is to make the asylum system less adversarial. How would you do that?
1: So um, going back to what I was saying about Canada's system, uh, Canada does not have an adversarial system. And what that means is that you don't have this incredibly well-trained and well-educated attorney whose job is specifically to know this kind of law arguing against your ability to be protected. So in Canada's system you have the person who's going to make the decision about whether this, this individual meets the asylum criteria and then you have somebody helping that individual tell their story to this person so that they can make those determinations. Um, So it's an it's a non adversarial system. And we actually have a version of that in the United States. But we only allow people to go through that system. If they are already here, let's say somebody comes to the United States on a student visa. And once they get here, and they're living here fully, you know, complying with everything with their visa, and they say, Hey, you know what, United States it's really dangerous for me back in my country. My life is in danger if I go back and I think that maybe I should stay. Um, if they want to do an application to to request asylum that way, they go through a non-adversarial process. They go and they they have an in-person interview with an asylum officer and that person can grant them asylum. Uh, if they don't get granted asylum, they get a second chance in the immigration court system, but their their first chance is in a what feels a little less intense (laughs) it's a it's a little more uh understanding of of what this person has probably lived through in the Mm -hmm. way that it's structured
0: yeah it's like from what you're describing it's like the current u.s asylum system is kind of more like winning a court case when really it should be like applying for a loan or something like that in which they just determine if you're eligible or not
1: And so what we, you know, what we see too is that all, you know, not every immigration court case is an asylum case. There are a lot of other kinds of immigration court cases too. Um, And so that, you know, means that judges have to have a much wider range of, of immigration law knowledge all the time when they're working these different cases, but still be trained enough in asylum to make these decisions that asylum officers, like that's their job. Their whole job is to figure out asylum cases. Um, and it also bogs down the court system because it takes a lot more resources to put a case through a court than it does to put a case through the asylum office. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more resources, a lot more staff, a lot more things that have to happen. So if you took all those cases that were in that backlog and put them through the affirmative process, that would, that would drastically change how a lot of that is functioning. Mm-hmm.
0: Number eight, uh, create stability in neighboring countries. Uh, this seems to be uh, kind of in response to the forced displacement that happens with conflicts and issues with uh, the environment as well. What specifically is recommended the U.S. start doing here?
1: Well, so it, it depends a little bit on where where we're trying to address this. Um, a, a lot of the focus of conversation, if you, if you talk to people who are working in this, is is what to do in, in the countries closest to us where there are refugee situations. So that would be Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, you know even Nicaragua um, although most most people who are, are fleeing Nicaragua go to Costa Rica, we do we do end up with some as we saw in, in the first installment um, in this series. Um, but a lot of the conversation really is Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. Um, looking at the corruption there, looking at the way that gang violence and control is intermingled with that corruption, um, looking at the sexual violence and gender-based violence happening there, um, and looking at the the large-scale inequality and poverty in these countries and the way all of those things interrelate to create situations that are not safe for people, Mm -hmm. which would require, you know, funding, but funding in very specific and researched ways.
0: Mm -hmm. So kind of like a targeted relief program just to improve the overall quality of life so it never gets to the point in which people feel the need to flee in ways that they have.
1: Right. That's part of it. And then part of it, too, would be really looking at our our foreign policies to say you know are we are we really championing democracy you know in in the way that we interact with other countries we have historically at times chosen to prop up you know more authoritarian figures over more democratic figures because we thought they were better for us interests but in the long run, it ends up creating situations that are very difficult for people to stay in. People end up getting persecuted by those authoritarian governments and they end up on our doorstep. So, you know, sort of thinking about even if we're thinking in our own interests uh, rather than just, you know, a, a more humanitarian mindset, thinking about, you know, the long term effects of some of those decisions and 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 where we should be making those determinations maybe differently. Mm
0: hmm. The ninth recommendation is to begin processing asylum claims in other countries. How would this work? Isn't this something that was actually made a requirement for um, some of the people coming up from Central America?
1: So, this is this one. Um, there is definitely there are definitely ways to do this that would work, and ways to do this that would be harmful. So, I think you know it's it's important to talk about this point in sort of the full context of that. Um, there have been programs. Uh, that allow people to get processed as refugees closer to home in in different places. Um, you know, where we set up something even at our embassy in a country, and people can come there and say, like, hey, you know, I'm in danger here. can you can you help me get out of here? Um, for some people, going through a process like that, uh, you know they're they're in danger, but they're not in, but the kind of danger that they're in isn't like, if I'm still in my home tomorrow, I'm gonna be gone. Uh, and it would, it, those programs also have to be in countries that like, don't care if their people are applying for protection from them. There are some governments that will, you know, spy on, well, who's going to the U S embassy and let's go to their homes in the night and, and handle this, you know? So, so it would have to be a very sort of specific program for a specific place. Um, And the processing would have to happen quickly enough that people could actually get out of danger before it came for them. Um, So we have we have seen some different attempts at that. Um, There was a program for children in Central America under the Obama administration to help bring them to the United States without requiring them to make the incredibly dangerous journey to come all the way to the border. Um, some, some critics have told me that that program didn't work fast enough to protect the ones that were like in the, in the most need of protection. So, um, in order to, to improve on that, you would have to look at, really look at those processing times and how those could be sped up. Um, but if there are ways to, to safely and humanely and quickly process people where they don't have to make these journeys where a lot of people lose their lives or their limbs or, you know, get violently attacked. Um, that would also be, that would also be a win for, you know, humanity. So, uh, I think, I think that one is, is complicated, but, but there are, there are opportunities there. Mm
0: -hmm. And the last recommendation is redefining refugee. What are some of the problems with the current definition?
1: So. When you look at how the US interprets the definition from these international agreements, we tend to take a more restrictive um, definition than what is recommended even from the United Nations. So uh, if you look at whether uh, a woman fleeing domestic violence in a country that does not protect against that kind of abuse is is not necessarily going to win her case here in the United States. Um, we had seen some some progress on that front in case law. So there were there were cases that were decided in the women's favor that were then used as precedent, so so others could um, could get similar protection. Um, under the Trump administration, we saw those case that that precedent rolled back and a new precedent set that no that women fleeing this kind of harm should not be given protection. Um, We've seen sort of similar uh, things with with people fleeing gang violence. Um, The Trump administration said very strongly that gang violence was not a kind of harm that you could get asylum for, but there are, are documents from the United Nations that say if a person is fleeing, you know, gang violence in Honduras and they, you know, have like xyz criteria like they probably count as a refugee like you should really consider consider their case um and then there's you know even like canada is more willing to to recognize those kinds of harm as somebody who's who's deserving asylum so we are we are more restrictive than than some of the other um, legal or p- interpretations out there from, from entities that are doing this work. Um, and then there's also, you know, sort of looking forward into the future, like the, the kinds of harm that happen to people change, you know, and our, our definition is not very flexible to those changes. And so there's room for a conversation about whether we need to remold the definition in a way that can can better navigate those changing kinds of harm, um, and one of the examples that we we give is is talking about climate change and and is the asylum system the right thing to protect people who are fleeing the harms of climate change that's you know that's for the world to decide, but if if not that, then maybe there needs to be some other way to to address that situation because there are people who are already fleeing. You know the devastating effects of climate change, and that's only going to increase. And they're going to need some place to go. We mm-hmm. we have to decide what that's going to look like, or or how our country is going to participate in that. So it's it's really a big a big question to to ask ourselves. Mm-hmm.
0: And when considering all of those uh, different approaches of making this system more fair, just, and living up to the what it was intended to be. Is there yet anyone, be it in government or in the nonprofit realm, that is kind of becoming a standard bearer for some of these changes? Because you need to have a coalition that's willing to put in the work, write legislation, have some kind of bipartisan agreement for this all to happen. There's only so much that a president can do on its own. Is there yet a champion for changes to asylum or immigration generally?
1: I mean there are any number of of human rights groups and immigration rights groups and immigration law groups. And, you know, the, for example, the, the immigration judges union and the uh, association, the American immigration lawyers association and the federal bar association all teamed up and had a big conversation. And the federal bar association put out a document of like proposed legislation for moving Immigration court to the judicial branch, um, and so we do see those conversations happening about a number of these issues. I don't know that there's one entity that has like the legislation already written for all of these things, um, but there are a lot of organizations out there that are making these recommendations and and putting in the work. Um, you know, I've seen uh, even in the last couple months things coming out from like Human Rights First and and um, you know the. The United Nations agency responsible for refugees has a lot of recommendations and documents. Um, and I found, you know, in recent years, they've even tried to work with the U- European Union to assess their their asylum system. There's documents on the internet about that and some of the recommendations that they made. Um, so maybe, you know, they could be somebody that that the U.S. government could decide to get more involved in that conversation. Um, there's a lot of people out there doing doing the work. Um, and we see, you know, a handful of politicians who are who are starting to try to to put bills in that have some of these things in them. But it's 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 piece by piece and, and person by person. It's not, you know, this widespread movement in in the people who are in Congress right now, for example.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think it's safe to say there's probably not going to be kind of an affordable care act for the asylum system, some kind of omnibus thing that changes everything. It's probably going to be piecemeal, depending on what's possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends, you know, how how these couple of elections go in January and then, you know, who continues to get elected in the next two years, four years and and beyond. I don't I don't think it's something we're going to see in 2021. I could be proved wrong. You never know. (laughs) Um, but I would, I would be very surprised if it, if it came together that quickly. Um, but you know, we'll just, we'll just have to wait and see and and keep covering what does happen. Mm
0: -hmm. And finally, uh, what's next for this series? What's your plan for kind of following whatever happens in Washington in 2021 and beyond?
1: I'm gonna keep covering the immigration beat. That's my job. I'll be, you know, probably doing more daily coverage than readers have seen me do for a while. So you can look forward to seeing my writing, hopefully look forward to seeing my writing in the paper more often. Um, and I'm definitely, you know, I'm I'm staying in touch with, with people who I spoke to on the project. I'm still following Barbara's case. So um, whenever we actually get resolution on on her case, I'll, I'll definitely be following up With that, she is still waiting in Tijuana. Um, The pandemic has pushed back her hearing over and over and over and over again. And so uh, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen.
0: All right. Kate Morrissey, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix. In the last week of 2020, the Union Tribune is looking back on this historic and painful year. Visit our site to view the year in photos and reflect on the scenes of 2020. From the hunt for toilet paper in the first days of the lockdown, inside COVID wards, protest marches across the region, the abbreviated but successful Padre season, and a historic election. Until next time.